Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Mary Harris, WNYC's health editor. For six months, we focused on cancer and how many of us are touched by it. One in two men, one in three women will get this diagnosis. WNYC's On the Media produced a two-hour special. Here's our one. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. This week, exploring cancer in language, in public, and throughout time. The ancient physicians thought a lump of cancer was like a crab buried under the sand, and all the inflamed blood vessels around it were like the legs of the crab. Sometimes you feel as a patient as if you're an immigrant in a foreign country where you just don't speak the language. Simple exposure to these enemy metaphors for cancer were actually dampening people's thoughts of limitation and restraint because that's just not how you fight enemies. Three out of four Americans are frustrated and confused Oh, they got a thing that's going to cure cancer, but then you never hear about it again. A lot of quackery came from the media attention. People felt they just wanted to find something to cure him. This is On the Media. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Bob Garfield is away. I'm Brooke Gladstone, devoting this episode to perceptions of cancer in language, in the news, in our mind's eye. So quick, what do you see when I say the word cancer? A bald head? An x-ray? A loved one? What I see is a pulsating cell, fiery red, with sunken eyes, a sinister grin, and radiating spikes that twitch and stretch and scrabble across my field of vision. Seriously, that's what I see. In this edition of the show and next week's, we're drilling deep down into the construction of cancer as metaphor, entertainment, and crucible for public action. For it has been, always will be, too much with us. As long as we live, the longer we live. The way that cancer has insinuated itself in public imagination has a long history. And that's why I think it was exciting to imagine, you know, what the life of cancer is like. We're launching this hour with Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, author of The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer. He says that our notion of cancer's fierce and adamant nature begins with its name. It comes to us from ancient times. The word refers to the word crab for a reason that's very visceral. The ancient physicians the legend goes that even Hippocrates thought that a lump of cancer was like a crab buried under the sand and all the inflamed blood vessels around it were like the legs of the crab. And then it just got more and more enriched. People thought the pincers of the crab or the sideways movement of cancer metastases. The oldest reference that you know of comes from ancient Egypt. In fact, the oldest reference is probably the oldest medical documents we possess as humans. So, in fact, the very, very oldest document, the Edwin Smith Papyrus, it's a surprisingly modern document, even though it was written, you know, around 2500 BC, which has case histories. And uh, one of those case histories seems like a case of breast cancer. We can't be sure. Sounds like it, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it's an incredibly vivid description. It says, a mass in the breast as dense and hard as a hemat fruit, a kind of fruit that you can find in that part of the world. And it's cool to the touch as opposed to the inflammatory, pus-forming, infectious causes. Every case in the papyrus, it's very organized. It has a case description, a therapy, and a prognosis. 
And perhaps the most moving thing about the description is that in treatment and prognosis, the scribes wrote, there is none. I thought it was really interesting, though, as you described the history, it seems to vanish any mention of cancer for a couple of thousand years. Why do you think the record goes silent? Well, the main reason is that cancer is an age-related disease. Not all cancers, obviously, they're cancers of childhood, but it's mainly an age-related disease, and people just didn't live long enough. And so there wasn't very much cancer in the world. And when it did occur in the ancient world, it was really viewed as a kind of catastrophe, a visitation from destiny or fate. Queen Atassa of Persia was not an old woman. Queen Atassa's story is a very moving story. She is diagnosed with what seems like breast cancer, and her response is surprisingly contemporary. Her, her first response is shame. She's really haunted by the stigma of this thing that's growing in her breast. We are told from Herodotus, she wraps herself in sheets and sort of vanishes until a Greek slave is asked to remove the tumor. Is he asked or does he offer? He may have offered. He clearly is versed in the arts of surgery. And there's an interesting trade that he makes. He asks the queen, essentially, to ask her husband. Who, by the way, is Darius the Great. You know less than Darius the Great, who rules what was then one of the most powerful kingdoms in the world. The slave, Demosides is his name, asked the king to turn the campaign away from the Persian front towards the Greek front. So the Greek can return to his own homeland, now conquered by the king. And he, the slave, as far as we know, successfully delivers this operation. And in fact, the king does turn his campaign, and that launches the Greco-Persian Wars, which in turn launches the early history of the modern West. You can suddenly see that so much of history turns on biography, so much of history turns on the biography of illness, in this case of breast cancer. However ancient the roots of cancer, it is perceived as essentially a modern disease, and this has everything to do with metaphor. In metaphor, it's described as a disease of excess. It's probably interesting to counterpoise it against the other disease that really occupied public imagination in the 19th century, which was tuberculosis. You know, tuberculosis was called consumption, and it was a hollowing out. It would eat you up from within. There was a romantic Victorian idea of fading away. Beautifully. It's a beautiful death. You know, Byron famously romanticized it. And cancer was quite the opposite. Uh, it was a death in which lumps grew out of nowhere. It wasn't a beautiful death. It was a death by choking, by excess. Being filled up with... Malignant cells. The observation was that masses, things that shouldn't be there, were suddenly boiling up or bubbling up. Self-control had somehow become dysregulated and begun to metamorphose. And so the idea was that cancer was the body in excess. How is that modern? There was very much in Victorian times the idea that modernity was excess, that capitalism was excess, filling up with exaggerations of money, of desire. And then on top of that, this idea of metastasis, a disease always in motion, like modernity. Exactly. And, you know, even the word metastasis, metastasis, suggests the notion that it is beyond stasis, the movement, constant movement, in this case, the ill-defined and ugly movement, which ultimately causes death. You wrote this image of cancer as our desperate, malevolent, contemporary doppelganger is so haunting because it is at least partly true. 
because the cells that cause cancer, of course, are cells in your own body. And this also haunted post-Victorian imagination because most of the diseases that we knew were microbial. They came from outside. And then all of a sudden, we began to discover diseases where the pathology was from inside, from yourself. Why is it that a perfectly normal cell living a perfectly normal good citizen life woke up one day and became a cell in excess? Why is it marauding other parts of the body and colonizing them? You describe doctors throughout the last century and and even in the beginning of this one as like a pack of blind people touching the different parts of that proverbial elephant, each declaring that they have the whole picture. It was quite clear from the 19th century pathologists that cancer was ultimately caused by cells dividing when they shouldn't be dividing. But what caused that? It turns out that on occasion, a virus, a foreign microbe, can cause that kind of dysregulated cell division. And so immediately, scientists thought that they'd got all the answers. You know, this is a typical kind of progression in which you find one instance and you generalize it to all instances. And therefore, by the 1940s, it was clear that cancer must be a viral disease. And of course, viral diseases are sometimes curable. So this was a lovely idea. It was all perfect. The media picked it up as a contagious disease. um, And I described this uh, moment of wonder and delight that, you know, cancers would all be solved just like other viral diseases can be vaccinated. Maybe you can vaccinate against all cancer. Now, notice we're still talking about cancer in one big C, one kind of virus. And that's because people thought that, you know, despite there being so many different kinds of cancer, all cancers would have a common cause. Mm -hmm. The unified theory of cancer was like trying to reconcile Newtonian quantum physics. That's right. There was a quest, and this quest still remains with us today, to find a grand unified theory of cancer. And the early virus hunters had gotten a clue because they could put viruses into chickens and create cancers that looked like, for all intents and purposes, like real cancers. But then there were things that didn't fit that clue. So, for instance, why did chimney sweeps in England get cancer of the scrotum? They weren't being infected by a virus that was quite obvious. Why did people, again, by the 1900s, people who smoked, die of lung cancer? So that didn't fit. Why did people like, you know, famously, uh, Marie Curie died of a precancerous lesion because she had exposed herself probably to so much radiation? Why were all these people dying if there was a virus? And then third, the third piece that really didn't fit was that there were clearly hereditary forms of cancer. Breast cancer, for instance, clearly ran in families. Why was it in families? Why was it being caused by some environmental exposure like a cigarette? Was it a virus? There were sort of a triangle of forces trying to find a grand unified theory of cancer, like three blind men trying to touch the elephant. Siddhartha Mukherjee is author of The Emperor of All Maladies. Coming up, the stories we tell ourselves about cancer. Hi, uh, my name is Abigail, calling from Atlanta, Georgia. My mother died of lung cancer. The things that really make me cringe is this idea that if you have a positive attitude, you will survive and you will beat cancer. My mother had a great attitude, and she worked really hard to beat cancer. I think my mother felt, towards the end, that transitioning to hospice care and palliative care and a comfort approach 
which I think really would have benefited her, also was kind of quitting and therefore not fighting hard enough. This is On the Media. On the Media is supported by Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, striving to make today a revolutionary era in cancer treatment. More science, less fear. More at mskcc.org slash more science. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. There is often a sizable gap between what we believe to be true about cancer and its treatment and the reality. For instance, the public perception of leukemia is that it's the fourth most common cancer. But how common is it, really? Tenth. Hmm. Leukemia receives a lot of news coverage, and it receives a lion's share of federal funding, whereas bladder cancer, it's very rarely depicted in the news, and it receives almost no funding relative to other cancers. Jacob Jensen focuses on cancer communication at the University of Utah, so I asked him why our perception is so skewed. Does leukemia rank so high because its victims are young and bladder cancer so low because its victims are old? We've never really faced that question. We just know the rankings. And we know them because Jensen and his fellow researchers assessed a year's worth of cancer coverage, more than 6,000 articles from the top 50 newspapers, and found that the public's ranking of common cancers tracks more with the coverage than actual incidence rates. What's more, so does federal research funding. In fact, when I ask people to rank the cancers in order from most common to least common, the one they tend to rank last is bladder cancer. And in fact, it's sixth. It's very, very common. Why do you think that is? Here's what I want to rule out right off the bat. It's not as simple as it's the media's fault. You know, why is breast cancer one of the most heavily discussed cancers in news coverage, in fiction? Well, a lot of that has to do with funding. Funding drives research. Research drives breakthroughs. Breakthroughs drive press releases. Press releases drive news coverage. But of course, the public plays a role in driving what gets funded. One of the forces that influences the public is the media. But of course, what influences the media? The funding, right? So (laughs) they all are sort of participating together in constructing a reality that seems very natural, right? I mean, When I say to people that bladder cancer is the sixth most common cancer, their reaction to me is often, is that true? (laughs) If bladder cancer was sixth, wouldn't it feel that way? You know, the goal of my research is not to argue that some cancers deserve less funding. In fact, I think all cancer needs more funding. But what I would say is that there's clearly a handful of cancers that are receiving funding that is far less than you would expect relative to the number of people that are affected by those cancers. So what do you think needs to be done to solve it? I think the National Cancer Institute would serve us well by coming out with a a lucid statement that says, okay, how do we actually allocate funding by cancers? What is the logic behind that? Second solution, I would argue, comes into play in media. If you want to be a health journalist, you're going to see way more leukemia stories, way more breast cancer stories. The press releases are going to be running into you. There's going to be a lot more research coming in for that. And unless you know that, for example, there are cancers that are rarely depicted but are very common, how do you actively start to interject your own frame on it? The third thing is the role I think the public might have. A lot of cancer funding also comes from local or regional organizations. Let's make sure that our local efforts don't mirror these same distortions. If you were to raise something like $20,000 for bladder cancer, 
it would have a significant effect on the research in a way that it might not in breast cancer because bladder cancer is struggling to even get off the ground from a research area, right? So $20,000 might take a young faculty member who's just starting their research line somewhere. Well, now that person has a 40-year career studying bladder cancer because of that initial seed grant. What about the coverage of treatment? Has there been any media effect there? Oh, yeah, definitely. The bulk of news coverage of cancer is about innovative cancer treatments. And there are lots of distortions. And the reason it's a problem we have to get away from is that early clinical research is often a failure. There's a survey called the Health Information National Trend Survey. Mm -hmm. It's put out by the National Cancer Institute. And what it finds every single year is that three out of four Americans are frustrated and confused Oh, they got a thing that's going to cure cancer, but then you never hear about it again. And I think that's a byproduct of covering research too quickly. And it's unfortunate because there is a lot of cancer research that is very far along. One of the things I can't believe we're not talking more about in the press right now is where we're at with colon cancer screening. That's research that is ready for public consumption. And yet, you know, there's more stories in any given year about nani juice and how it might prevent cancer. And you've referred to something that researchers call cancer fatalism. Cancer fatalism is the belief there's nothing you can do. It has two components. You can be fatalistic about prevention. I'm going to get it or I'm not. Everything causes cancer, so it's just pick your carcinogen, right? And then there's cancer fatalism about treatment, that if you get cancer, you're either going to live or die. What you do after you're diagnosed is irrelevant. As you might guess, fatalism about prevention is very, very common. Fatalism about treatment, less so. There's something a little self-serving about that, I think, if you unpack that, right? (laughs) If I get cancer, I want to believe there's something I can do to stop it. But I don't want to believe that what I'm doing right now is causing cancer. You know, how do you start talking about cancer prevention with a public that just thinks everything you're telling them is going to be contradicted tomorrow? Mm -hmm. They told us that margarine was bad, then they told us it was good, you know. Which one's better, margin or butter? It's butter. Well, here's what the epidemiological research really says. There's not many studies, and they find very small differences, and the difference keeps flipping back and forth. And the first couple of times it flips, it's a story, but now it's almost become a tragedy because it's an exemplar of what they perceive all cancer news coverage to be. I'll give you an example. I'm working with the Huntsman Cancer Institute at the University of Utah to start developing a message about low-dose aspirin and how it prevents colorectal cancer. There is a lot of data supporting it. So we're trying to develop a message for the public. But when we start running surveys with people, the first thing I get back is, oh, I'm just tired of hearing this. Margarine. Yeah, margarine or butter, man. Tomorrow you're going to tell me low-dose aspirin causes colorectal cancer. We have played certain cards too much. We have allowed cutting-edge research to be the topic of too much conversation, and then it flip-flops or it fails. And unfortunately, when we come forward with really strong research, they're going to be understandably skeptical because we have failed them before. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Jacob Jensen specializes in cancer communication at the University of Utah. So Jensen says that the messaging filtered through the media often fails us. 
That's because those messages are bound up in scientific and political complexities. But some news stories are deceptively, beguilingly simple. A child with cancer needs money. You can save him. We'll hear two of those stories, one this week, one next. This week's comes from WNYC's Amanda Aronchik. All cancer stories start at diagnosis. For eight-year-old David Grover, it came in 2003. His jaw hurt, and his father, Brian Grover, assumed it would be a short visit to the hospital in Fairfax. Yeah, I mean, we went in to get him hydrated and didn't come out for a year and a half, and we were still in and out of the hospital for the better part of two and a half years, roughly. Once David was admitted, Brian shuttled between the hospital, his job at a computer company, and raising his three older boys. His wife, Tiffany, essentially moved into David's room. Her company reduced her pay, reduced her hours, let her go. She only missed one night, I think, was it two? Two nights they kicked her out of the hospital because she was really sick, and I came in. And she said, no, call me and wake me up in four hours. And I refused to do it, and she slept for about 19. Their son had a grapefruit-sized tumor filling the cavities of his skull, pressing on his throat and obstructing his breathing. Tiffany said the standard treatments, like chemo, were disastrous. Where most people nausea vomiting, for David, nausea vomiting, and would shut down an organ. Something totally unexpected. And that was one of the reasons they didn't... His prognosis was so bleak. The family was advised to procure a do-not-resuscitate order. Doctors said... Find yourself a gravesite. Sometimes the doctors were assholes. It's hard to fathom a worse nightmare, but Brian and Tiffany believe in God, family, and a good laugh, probably in that order, and they refuse to wallow. And David is their kid. When he decided that the hospital toys were lame, he didn't feel sorry for himself. He used his wish from Make-A-Wish to buy games for the other inpatient kids. At this time, you have this little boy who had given away his Make-A-Wish, which, first of all, to me, that's outstanding. I mean, a kid can have whatever they want for their Make-A-Wish, and he didn't want it. The local paper picked up that story. Then one quirky, heartwarming story begat another. The Washington Post found out the family was raising money for an experimental treatment in Los Angeles by selling shoes, purses, old jeans on eBay. Anything they could fix a price to, they were selling. Then Tiffany auctioned a bumper sticker. Brian had made bumper stickers, made five of them, that said Frank must die. David named his tumor Frankenstein, Frank for short, hence Frank must die. eBay wasn't new, but these were what you might call the experimental years. People were selling all sorts of weird things, their souls, their towns, their virginity, and famously a half-eaten, decade-old grilled cheese sandwich with the image of the Virgin Mary burnt into the toast, which sold for a ridiculous sum of money. Twenty-some-odd thousand, maybe more? Crazy money. And I'm like, you know what? If somebody's going to buy a grilled cheese, maybe they'll buy a bumper sticker and we'll get a couple hundred dollars. Tiffany posted her Frank Must Die bumper sticker for 99 cents. She labeled the auction, Help Kill My Son's Cancer. But that's not what she was selling. So eBay took down the auction. Outrage ensued. Outrage equals more media. From NBC News, this is Today. At this point, David Grover had endured two years of chemo and radiation. He could take no more of either. The family faced a choice. Get a craniotomy to peel back David's face to remove the now peach pit-sized tumor or take their son home and, quote, enjoy the rest of his time. 
Tiffany found a doctor in L.A. who thought he could remove the tumor through the nose. Now, at this point, David Grover was a leading news item. A Today Show producer told the doctor about David and eBay. He offered to do the surgery for free. They flew to L.A. and were greeted by a swarm of reporters. I mean, we're in L.A. at Cedars-Sinai Hospital. Everybody that's, you know, an actor goes here. I'm sure it's somebody like Tom Hanks is here. No, it was all for David, which was crazy. Post-surgery, the Today Show even got exclusive rights to this declaration. Doctor, walk us through what the prognosis was. You have some good news to share with us. We do indeed. We can tell today that Frank has left the building. (laughs) David Grover was tumor-free, and his family, flown back to Los Angeles for more media appearances, were bi-coastal cancer celebrities. Here she is now, Ellen DeGeneres! Sitting on a couch beside Ellen DeGeneres, David looked small. His glasses sit on his ears that stick out a bit, and he has a crooked smile. In his striped jersey, he looked adorable. During this time, you decided to name the tumor. I named it Frank because I was afraid of Frankenstein when I was littler, and it helped me conquer my fears. So it's your 10th birthday, and we have a few surprises for you. First of all, who's your favorite band? Kiss. Really? Look. The band apparently flew in on their own dime. Tiffany says that Gene Simmons gently helped David try on his boots backstage. He brought out the loving dad in Gene Simmons. For the most part, the family welcomed the attention. It had been very helpful. But the media had expectations and demands. We had just gotten back, and one of the local news segments wanted to do a follow-up, which was fine. David was on this... Was it this couch? No, it was the old, it was the older couch. Yeah, um, just resting. And the gentleman doing the interview is like, can he get up and do something? The family had really opened the doors to the media. The public held its breath in the hospital waiting room, applauded when David was cancer-free, and felt free to dole out helpful advice. We should give him coffee enemas, or we should put crystals around him. I mean, a lot of quackery came from the media attention, people felt they just wanted to find something to fix what was going on to cure him. It got darker. We were getting a lot of emails saying, well, you should just take him to Switzerland, let him die, you need to put him down like a dog. You Exploiting your child so you can take all this money. You gave him cancer. Eventually, they shut down the message board and unlisted their phone number. But on David's 12th birthday, he could still be seen on television. They said that I'm pretty good. I'm Ned. Uh Uh-huh. You're Ned. What's that? I'm Ellen. How are you? (laughs) What's Ned? Um, Ned means no evidence of diseases. Oh, good. That's, that's, That's what you're looking for. Yeah. They were on The Ellen Show repeatedly. She gave him his own name-plated seat. David said he wanted to be an Egyptologist. An Egyptologist? Yeah. So yeah. you'd have to go to Egypt to do that. Oh, yeah. You want to go there. Yeah. Be fun and I to go there. five years. Yeah. Well, what if we help you go there? Uh, what if, a what week if? in Egypt. And wait, there's more. The $25,000 You Promise College Fund interest-bearing account that starts growing right now. And so we're starting you off with this $25,000 for a college. David is cancer-free and has been for years. But he's having a lot of memory issues. 
He reads at a fifth-grade level. Ellen's big check, hanging on the wall of Grover's suburban home, will stay there. I can't do anything with it because it's in a 529, and a 529 has to be used for education. So it would be great if we could actually use it for David's jaw replacement, but you can't take it out unless you want to be taxed and double taxed. So it's just going to sit there, and maybe someday we'll use it for the grandkids if that's what David wants to do with it. We don't know. The media attention tapered off around 2008. You said that when I called you initially that nobody had been in touch in years. No, nobody. Why do you think nobody had been in touch? Because the feel-good story was over. He lived. They just want the good part. Although I have my boy back, the boy that was admitted to the hospital when he was a little boy is not the same boy that came out. The Grovers say that they were not warned about all the effects, the side effects, the late effects, the many, many effects of treatment. Yes, you always sign your consent before radiation, but... It's kind of like when you sign your agreement for your iPhone. It's hard to process the fine print, and the radiation he received was very aggressive, and he was such a little kid. The radiation has caused him to have cataract in his jaw is being reabsorbed and will eventually have to be totally removed and replaced with porcelain or a cadaver bone or titanium, something. You can look at his feet there and see that he's got foot drop and they're shaped weird, almost almost like club feet in some way. So he's got lots of physical issues. David, sitting on my right, is quietly listening. He still looks a lot like he did when he was on TV, but he's taller and heavier. His parents do not shield him from these medical details. It's his life. Has it been rough? It has. I mean, basically, it took part of my life away. It took my, part of my school life away. It took your school life away because you couldn't go to school? Correct. David is hard to read. In a way, he seems frozen in time. Much younger than his 20 years. And his doctor says the radiation he endured more than a decade ago continues to seep into his body and mind and might make things worse. Did you mind all the attention? Did you get to a point where you're like, eh, I don't want to do this anymore? A little bit sometimes. I just got tired of it sometimes. Does this feel kind of exhausting, by the way, to have met with me twice and be telling no. this? How, why not? Because I haven't done it in a while. Ten years ago, it really seemed like anything was possible for David Grover. He survived against so many odds. With a love of many he didn't even know. But the world can't fix everything. And anyway, it always moves on. It hardly ever looks back. For On the Media, I'm Amanda Aronchik. Coming up, the language of cancer and its side effects. My name is Cece. I'm calling from New York City. And I developed breast cancer at the age of 23. There are a lot of cancer words that make me cringe, but the one that comes to mind is cured. I never know what to say when people ask me if I'm cured. Yes, I'm doing better, but I will always have this looming threat of reoccurrence, and I am still dealing with a lot of the after effects of my treatment. I really don't think that anybody can say with confidence that they are cured. My name is Paige, and I'm calling from Los Angeles, and I don't like the word cancer survivor because depending on the kind of cancer, you're not going to be a cancer survivor. And then there's people who call themselves cancer survivors when really they're just 
cancer like waiters, you know, it's more like cancer purgatory. This is On the Media. On the Media is supported by Constant Contact, committed to helping small businesses and nonprofits succeed with email and online marketing tools, with coaches to provide guidance and help organizations meet their goals. More at ConstantContact.com. And Road Scholar, with educational travel adventures to 150 countries, including Cuba, offering experiences for grandparents and grandchildren, active outdoor enthusiasts, and others. A catalog is available at roadscholar.org. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Ever since the war on cancer was launched in the 70s, the battle has raged. Fighting battles on and off the field. A young girl's courageous battle with cancer as her NFL player dad gets a big honor here in Washington. We love that story. But when we asked listeners to share cancer-related words that make them cringe, it turns out the war metaphor neither serves the patient nor even describes the reality of contending with cancer in the designated battlefield of one's own body. As many listeners told us, including Mike Burns of Middletown, New Jersey, If my family writes in my obituary that I died after a hard-fought battle against cancer, I will come back from the dead to haunt them until the end of time. I hate all the cancer terminology having to do with fighting and battles and survivors and wars. I have multiple myeloma, which is incurable. It will kill me if I don't get hit by a bus first. Does the fact that I will not win the so-called battle against cancer make me or others like me any less worthy? I don't think so. That metaphor is not only unsettling, according to David Hauser, it's also unhealthy. He's a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor and author of the study, The War on Prevention, Bellicose Cancer Metaphors Hurt Some Prevention Intentions. There's books about foods that fight cancer. It appears in the slogans of cancer research funding organizations. It's actually the number one conceptual metaphor that's employed in popular press science journalism about cancer. Isn't framing cancer as an enemy generally regarded as the right approach? So some of the rationale for framing cancer as an enemy is frame it as a battle and everybody will sign up to enlist. It'll motivate them to actually engage in these beneficial behaviors in order to offset the disease. But you started questioning that conventional wisdom after hearing a talk about prostate cancer. Yeah, so what got me into this research was a possible effective treatment option for prostate cancer involves what they call watchful waiting. You treat the disease as if it's a chronic illness, keep an eye on it, and make sure it doesn't get any worse. And that struck a chord with me because a lot of research is basically me-search, right? So I was <laughs> attending this talk, and I was utterly dumbfounded by this idea because to me it just didn't make any sense. Why not? If cancer is an enemy that needs to be fought and destroyed, mm -hmm. then it just didn't make any sense for treatment to just leave it there and, and keep an eye on it, right? It needs to be completely wiped out and removed. I was basically thinking of cancer as if it was an enemy that needed to be fought, I realized that I was using a metaphor. And so you set out to determine whether using war language to describe cancer was having an impact on the way people actually confronted the disease. Right, as if exposure to this metaphor actually affects the way that people think about the disease and actually think about prevention options for the disease. So in one of our studies, what we did was we simply asked participants to 
list the cancer prevention behaviors that they would be willing to engage in. However, we randomly assigned participants to either see enemy metaphors for cancer or not. So for the enemy metaphors group, we asked them, what things would you do to fight against developing cancer sometime in your lifetime? However, for the control group, we just asked them, what things would you do to reduce your risk of developing cancer? And what we found was that this group who was exposed to the enemy metaphors for cancer actually listed fewer of these prevention behaviors involving limitations. So things like limiting your red meat intake or cutting processed foods from your diet. And what we took from that was that just simple exposure to enemy metaphors for cancer actually limits the extent to which these behaviors naturally come to mind and occur to people. What's the theory there? When you metaphorically frame something, it forces you to think about that concept in terms of another easier-to-understand concept. So whenever we metaphorically frame cancer as an enemy, then that causes people to bring attributes of how to deal with enemies onto their ideas about how to deal with cancer. And a major part of dealing with enemies involves active engagement and attacking at all costs. In contrast to that, it de-emphasizes self-limitation and behavioral restraints. And what we were finding in a couple of studies was that simple exposure to these enemy metaphors for cancer were actually dampening people's thoughts of limitation and restraint because that's just not how you fight enemies. Now, you also gave them a description of cancer, one of which read, cancer is a broad group of diseases characterized by the hostile growth and invasive spread of abnormal cells. And the second group had the words hostile and invasive cut out. Then you presented the enemy language again. One group got this disease involves an imbalance of abnormal cellular growth in the large intestine. The other had this disease involves an enemy uprising of abnormal cellular growth in the large intestine. And then finally, we just also had the neutral group where words relating to imbalance or relating to enemies were simply removed. And they just got simple messages like uh, the disease involves abnormal cellular growth mm -hmm. in the body. All three groups got essentially the same exact message. It was about a paragraph or two just giving risk statistics about colorectal cancer, which was what we focused on for this one. And what we found was that compared to both of the other two groups, when people see these war metaphors, it hurts the extent to which they want to engage in these prevention behaviors. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, yeah, no problem. David Hauser is a Ph.D. candidate in social psychology at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. He's author of the study, The War on Prevention, Bellicose Cancer Metaphors Hurt Some Prevention Intentions. The language used by doctors or by friends can intensify the anguish of those unmoored by cancer or left in its desolating wake. Hi, uh, my name is Patricia Wagner, and I don't like the word cocktail. I don't like metastases, and I don't like unknown origins. One of the most eloquent anatomists of cancer language is Susan Gubar, distinguished professor emeritus at Indiana University and author of Memoir of a Debulked Woman about life with ovarian cancer. Part of the problem of cancer language is that it can implicitly blame the patient. 
uh, when a patient is said to relapse. The word relapse is historically related to relapsing back into sin. Uh, mm-hmm. The word recurrence would be a better word choice. Oncologists frequently talk about a patient failing a drug or a procedure when, in fact, the procedure or the drug has failed the patient. And I think another problem is just how incomprehensible scientific and research language has become. I'm thinking about simple things that nurses and doctors use all the time, like ECOG status. I was told I had an anastomosis. I couldn't imagine what that was, even after I read the definitions on the web. It's almost impossible for most of us to understand what this language means. Of course, the scientists and the researchers need it. There's no question. But sometimes you feel as a patient as if you're an immigrant in a foreign country where you just don't speak the language. About memoir of a debulked woman, I know debulking is what they had to do to you. Tell me about that word. Debulking is one of those ugly words related to cancer. To me, it's one of the ugliest. And it means the taking out of everything in the abdomen that you can in order to try to save the person. So it's a kind of visceration. For me, the the word debulking became a kind of metaphor for the gutting of the entire world because it's followed by chemotherapy, which takes the color out of my world and it took the spirit out of my body and turned me into what I felt was a posthumous person. Um, I'm very grateful that right now I'm on a targeted drug, just four pills every day, because I think the traditional protocol for ovarian cancer debulks you of life with its excitement and its exuberance and its sense of pleasure. It takes a lot away. I don't think there's any good word that you could find to replace debulking. Surgeons call it the mother of all surgeries. Well, that might be better. It would be better. (laughs) M-O-A-S. And you were saying some of the words needlessly cast blame, it seemed, on the patients. But even words that suggested things that were favorable sometimes contributed to this language of blame, right? Yeah, there is a topsy-turvy sense to the whole universe of cancer. So if you get a positive result, it usually means something negative. If you have a brain scan and you're, and you're told that your brain is unremarkable, that's probably great news, but you would never know it. And if the surgical scan is clean... If it's clean, then you feel, oh my God, if and when the cancer comes back, I'm going to be dirty. But there are also a lot of euphemisms. I've gotten scans back where people have talked about spots or shadows, and I really had no idea what they were talking about. They could have just said malignancy, but it's hard for these doctors. They're delivering pretty crummy news quite frequently. It must be terribly demoralizing. I'm less charitable when I... I'm told that there are acceptable side effects because I just feel very strongly that a lot of the language about specifically the side effects of radiation and chemotherapy really does obfuscate. Which is why you celebrate Dr. Susan Love, she's a famous oncologist, her depiction of what the treatment is. Right. Well, she very famously calls surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy slash burn and poison. (laughs) And, you know, that's basically how it does feel to many patients. And then you said that there are issues that there are simply no words to adequately describe. You know, we don't have a word for the 
interminable waiting that cancer patients do. <laughs> I was thinking, wait, Ferno. Many people get doctors' opinions that disagree. A man with prostate may be told, wait and see, or he may be told, try radiation, or he may be told, surgery. What do we do with these disagreeing second opinions? And there I came up with double docked. Oh, that's good. This is a place where patients need to be inventive. And some patients have been very inventive about creating new words. Scanxiety. Yeah, I love scanxiety. Every month I have to get a blood test, and every few months I have to get a CT scan. And scanxiety has to do with the heightened anxiety as the scan approaches. The other one I really love is by Professor Jane at Stanford, chemoflage. Cheery, misleading depictions of what the chemotherapy side effects are likely to be. Exactly. What about the word previvor? That's an interesting word that's come up among particularly people with BRCA1 and 2 mutations. The ones that bring with them a very high likelihood of breast cancer. And also of ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. They used to be called carriers, which sort of sounds like they're carrying some kind of influenza or plague that other people could catch. So Previvor was an effort to explain that they survive pre, before getting cancer, but very aware that they may get cancer. That brings us to the word survivor. You don't like it. You've resisted it. I really don't like the whole warfare language around cancer. You have to fight and struggle against it valiantly. It's extremely hard to fight against something that's inside your body and part of your body. And it makes you feel very schizophrenic. Um, but I also really deeply feel that there are many people who are not going to survive cancer. And it makes them feel like they're duds. There's a whole cultural positive thinking, get a good attitude, and you will be able to vanquish cancer. So you don't like the word mostly because of its possible impact on those who know they aren't likely to survive. Exactly. What's the alternative? My favorite is, because you have to go to the hospital so much, cancer schlepper, <laughs> which my friend Nancy K. Miller came up with. Some of my readers in the New York Times blog, they suggested PhD, patient hasn't died. <laughs> I kind of like that. One of them came up with chemo sapien because <laughs> she's always going to be on chemo. And so she's decided that's her self-definition. It sounds like in confronting the inadequacies of that lexicon, there can also be a lot of pleasure or maybe even empowerment in reclaiming that language, reinventing it. I think so. My best example of that would be the queer theorist Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, who wrote a series of columns for MAM. She came up with all kinds of crazy self-definitions like BBP, bold, barfing person, you know, I mean... <laughs> She also decided to define herself as undead until that time when she has to be counted as among the differently extant. <laughs> She's also responsible for key biffa, quite ill but inexplicably fat anyway. Yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> Wonderful. But I also just want to point out that patients are bombarded by really inadequate language very often from family and friends. You look great. Um, you'll beat this. Or my grandmother had your kind of cancer. Someone actually said this to me, and she died after four months. Somebody said to a friend of mine, you're poor kids. Mm. I think the question 
would you like to talk with me? And do you want to define how we talk? It's just all that's necessary, setting up a framework so that the patient is the comfortable one. And if there was any word that you would like to extirpate from this discussion, would it be survivor? I don't like extirpating words. <laughs> this conversation about language and cancer really historically derives from Susan Sontag, um, her book Illness as Metaphor. And it's a brilliant book. It made a huge difference. It made cancer speakable when it came out in the 70s. But it's a draconian argument. I mean, it's a quixotic argument because she's arguing that we shouldn't use metaphors. She wants to extirpate, to use your language, metaphors. She thinks that metaphors have made cancer even more difficult to bear. But we can't get rid of metaphors. We can no more get rid of metaphors than we can get rid of words. And I think it's particularly important for cancer because it's invisible. It can often not be smelt, touched, or felt. So I would encourage people not to extirpate, but to create more metaphors and more languages to explain their experiences. Susan, thank you very much. Thank you. Susan Gubar is Distinguished Professor Emeritus at Indiana University and author of Memoir of a Debulked Woman. and I'm calling from Oregon. I just got over having leukemia, and I'm just back to work this week after doing a couple of rounds of chemotherapy. I don't have any words that make me cringe, but I will tell you that my coworkers, when they approach me and they tell me that they're glad I'm back, they won't say the C word. Like, it's the other C word. Oh, I heard you were out. You were in the hospital, weren't you? And I say, oh, yeah, I had cancer. And they cringe. Now that increasingly people live cancer out loud, options abound, not just for treatment, but for how to frame the very idea of cancer. Of course, the stigma remains, not because it will invariably kill you, it might not, but because it casts a chilly shadow. I mean, we could frame life itself as a death sentence, right? We're stuck on a track and there's a slow-moving train coming that we can't see. Mention cancer and bang, it jolts into view. Next week, stories of cancer, as told by Hollywood, Washington, and you and me. On the Media is produced by Kimmy Regler, Alana Casanova-Burgess, and Kasia Mihailovic. But this week and next, the heavy lifting is done by OTM producer Mira Sharma. We had more help from Jesse Brenneman, and our show is edited by me. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was David Grinbaum. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is produced by WNYC and distributed by NPR. This week's On the Media is part of WNYC's Living Cancer series, a radio companion to Ken Burns Presents Cancer, The Emperor of All Maladies, coming to PBS March 30th. Support for Living Cancer is provided by the Susan and Peter Solomon Family Foundation. Additional funding for WNYC's medical science reporting is provided by the Iris and Junming Lee Foundation. 
On the Media receives support from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, striving to make today a revolutionary era in cancer treatment. More science, less fear. More at mskcc.org slash more science. Support for On the Media also comes from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Overbrook Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.